welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name's Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and we're glad to have back with us Andy Stanley. Andy's a communicator, author, and pastor who founded Atlanta-based North Point Ministries in 1995. Today, North Point consists of eight churches in the Atlanta area and a network of 180 churches around the world. Andy's the author of more than 20 books, and his newest is entitled, Not In It to Win It, Why Choosing Sides Sidelines the Church. But before we hear from Andy, let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Well, I'm actually recording live from the Cody Library uh, at, the, at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto. We have been working with Wycliffe College with some uh, data research on churches in Canada, so glad to be up here. It's time we could get Andy Stanley, so we're all sort of remote today having this conversation. And, and uh, But I, I think it's an important conversation today. It's a conversation about Andy's new book, again, not in it to win it, but I want to kind of press in, ask some questions, walk through this book together. I, I had an advanced reader's copy, had the privilege of endorsing the book, so you know that I'm going to be favorable towards its message. And But I want to kind of start with, I mean, I've read, I think I've read almost everything Andy Stanley's probably written. I, I cried there when I read Deep and Wide. I, I improved my communication uh, in other books. This seems, Andy, first, thanks for being on the program. This seems a little yeah. bit out of your normal lane. Talk to us about why you wrote this book. <laughs> it's definitely out of my normal lane. In fact, <clears throat> You can appreciate this. It's also also out of my my um, publishing order. Sandra and I have been working on a parenting book that I was supposed to work on this summer. And last spring, to get to your question, I said, you know what? I got to hit hold on parenting because what I just what we just experienced as the church, evangelicals in particular, coming through COVID and then the craziness of the election cycle and the post-election um, craziness. I was so disturbed, Ed, and I felt like, just to get right to the point, I felt like COVID offered the church the opportunity of our lifetime in terms of coming together and doing something extraordinary in the community. I feel like we, to some degree, missed that, and I'll talk about we in just a minute. And then the election craziness, watching um, you know churches divide up and head toward the extremes politically, high-profile church leaders, high-profile nonprofit leaders weighing in politically, basically ostracizing, in my opinion, you know, half the country. Um, I was, I just felt like I, I need to write something just to get it out. And so I just started writing and then called my publisher and said, Hey, I have a book you may not want to publish <laughs> and that no one's going to want to endorse, but I just feel like I want to speak into this um, cultural moment uh, as it relates specifically to church leaders and the church. I'm not, a, you know, it's, I'm not speaking to either political party, but I just feel like the New Testament is so clear around some of the issues that we collided with and didn't line up with. I just wanted to speak to it. So I wrote not in it to win it. Yeah. And so let's let's frame it a little bit, because it I, I, I when I actually when I do a seminar on the cultural convulsion, I call it I use. You, know, you as an example, because um, a couple of things <laughs> of, the, of which word convulsion well, of, of the of the of walking through the cultural convulsion, because uh, our most listened to podcast actually was the interview we did with you when you said you were going to not meet for the rest of 2020. And um, people were interested in that. But I also remember both in the book and in other places you've mentioned just how much backlash you got around that and other things. And what's fascinating to me is that you got a church full of people 
who have walked through some Andy Stanley controversies in the past before 2020. You know, yeah. places people might say, well, I would agree, you know, we all know theological things where people would say this or that. And so it's not, though, a theological thing that actually Mm-mm. becomes the driver. So, I mean, if you stuck with Andy Stanley through some of the things he might have said that riled other people up, but this is the thing. And 2020 seemed to be the year. And you wrote a lot about it in the book and more. Again, the name of the book is not in it to win it. So so what happened? How did it become uh, different in the last few years? Well, for us, we're in a big metro area, Atlanta. We have churches in the city. We have a church in the Forsyth County, which is 85 percent Republican. We have two churches actually in the city. So. Again, we're not a single local church where I, it's easy to kind of navigate and take the temperature of the local congregation. So um, consequently, you know, we had people on both ends of the spectrum just angry with us that, again, and to your, you made the point perfectly, this was not theological. In fact, the people who um, left, and I talk about this in the book, the people who let me know they were leaving because they were angry. With, with I letters, called, strong letters, strong letters. You oh, shared stuff, voicemail, yeah. direct message. Yeah. I called every single one yeah. of them that we had book. information about because at my, you know, people know me as an author or speaker, but I'm really a pastor. I love the local church. So these were congregants who were in some ways connected. And many of them have been in our church, 5, 10, 15. One lady I called, she was part of our cassette tape ministry. Wow, wow, okay. Wow. She, she helped us duplicate tapes. And they were so angry and it wasn't over our, you know, in the old days, people got mad because of music, style of worship, the student program, the, you know, preaching style. They were angry when I drilled down to it. They were angry because I wouldn't take a stand, but meaning I wouldn't take their stand. And I said, well, I have taken a stand. I've taken a stand not to take (laughs) your stand. And most of these were Republicans. Most of them wanted to, you know, me to, swing far right um, with the church. And um, so the conversations always ended friendly. I made sure they ended friendly. Um, I said, hey, I, you know, I hope you'll come back. Um, but it was, it, it, honestly, it was discouraging to me as a pastor. I'm thinking, okay, you've been sitting under my teaching in our church all these years, and you're, you're leaving not because of something we've done. You're leaving because of something we haven't done and aren't going to do and have never done. So um, just real quick, the, the woman who made the cassette tapes at the end, um, it was very friendly. You know, we, I won't bore you with the whole conversation. I said, so let me get this straight. So you're going to leave our church and you're going to find the new church and you're going to make an appointment with the pastor and you're going to ask the pastor who he or she voted for. And then you're going to decide whether or not to attend that church. And it got real quiet. And then she just started laughing. I said, because that's what I'm hearing from you, that the new litmus test for the church you're going to attend is who the pastor voted for or is planning to vote for. This is absurd. You know, anyway, so it was. um, And the thing too, Ed, one of the reasons I wrote the book, I heard from like you did so many pastors around the country who were just getting the crap beat out of them by elders, deacons, core families. And they're like, wait a minute, this is, we've never politicized our church. Why, why now? And, um, and of course, because everything was politicized from COVID to masks, to vaccines. So it was a, it was a difficult season and still is for pastors. And I just feel like the new Testament in Jesus is so clear. This, there's not even any wiggle room on this. So I wrote a book. You did. 
Andy, I mean, you've been consistent in saying that pastors shouldn't politicize the church, and you said it again here. Can, can you unpack that a little bit, and why is that your advice? Yeah, well, by politicize the church, I mean, if you attend a church and feel like, because I'm a Republican, I fit here, because I'm a Democrat, I don't, or vice versa, um, the cheap shots pastors take about Biden or Trump or any other local official um, to, to you know, preach in such a way or use illustrations in such a way that it's very, very clear that if I'm a Democrat, I'm probably not going to love it here. If I'm a Republican, that's politicizing. It's elevating a political party or a political platform with political terminology over the purpose of the local church. And it's so anti-missional, to use a word I learned from Ed many years ago, and it is so anti-Great Commission, because essentially what we're saying is, if you are a member of a certain political party, you're not going to enjoy or like our church. So basically, I can only evangelize Republicans, or I'm only going to evangelize or make disciples out of Democrats. And what could be more absurd? And the hypocrisy, again, you know, I don't want, I know you got some more questions, is that if I you know, I'm very conservative, um, you know, politically, but if the Democrats are as evil and as anti-family and as anti-God as they have been made out to be, then they are the mission field. Well, if they are the mission field, why in the world would we want to position our church so that the people we're convinced are lost and hellbound aren't welcome in our church? Now, I don't buy into that, uh, you know, that narrative, honestly, but to listen to a lot of Republican leaders, that's, you know, that's that's how they sum up the Democratic Party and then basically ostracize them from the local church and then say, oh, you know, we're here to make disciples and evangelize the nations. I'm like, I, good luck with that. And Ed, I quote Ed in the book because he had he has he's has he said so many so much about this in the past. So I anyway. Well, and uh, the book is uh, not in it to win it. And, and I want to talk about what that means a bit. The, the, the subtitle is key to the, to the argument. It's why choosing sides sidelines the church. Now, now here's the thing. Uh, I, I think there are things that we want to choose sides on. And I know you do too. I, I want to choose sides on uh, when I see uh, when I see racial injustice, I want to choose sides. I, I want to choose sides for the unborn who are you know often forgotten and marginalized. I want to I want to choose side. I could, I could do 10 things. I won't go through them all. But the point is, it seems that as Christians, we're often called to choose sides. And some of the areas where we choose sides get tied up in political processes. So what's your advice to walk through those issues where we need to take sides, yet there's political ramifications to that? Yes. Well, and to your point, when I talk about taking sides, I'm talking about running to one extreme or the other right. in terms and you of do articulate political, that in the book. Yeah. political buckets. Yeah. But here's the most difficult thing. And here's what we're called to do. If I'm not willing to break ranks with my political party, when my political party gets it wrong on an issue where the New Testament and the scripture is clear, then I have elevated my party over my faith. I mean, it's just that clear. If I'm not willing to call out injustice on, you know, where I see injustice on the right or call out a, a lack of concern for the unborn on the left because I'm breaking ranks either way I go, then clearly, or if I, or if I just remain silent in order, you know, not to rock the boat or not to lose friends on the left or right, as a Christian, I have, I have just said, not one nation under God. I've said, my God under my nation. That's, that's what I'm declaring. And no Christian would ever acknowledge, or no Christian would ever admit that. But because of the nature of what's happened in our culture politically, and because everything is so politicized, 
um, so many Christians, I think, unintentionally end up there. And it's our responsibility as church leaders to call that out and, of course, to examine our own hearts because we are all so susceptible to that. So the most difficult thing you can do is to, because <laughs> in this climate, if you break, break rank over one part of right. a platform or right. one issue, you're out, you're canceled. Yeah. There's, there's no nuance anymore. And as we all know, problems are solved in the middle. Problems, problem, solutions require nuance and solutions require listening and entering into the experiences of the people who don't see the world the way we do. And um, wow, I just feel like, you know, in the last two years, too much of the church and too many high profile church leaders just abandoned that whole approach to life and ministry. And it leaves us weaker and certainly leaves us divided. Why, why do you think uh, it's hard for people to see why they politicize their faith? I mean, why is it hard for folks to, to understand that, you know, I've actually taken a side? I mean, mm -hmm. why is that? Well, and I talk about this a lot in the book. You know, if I were to do a message on, you know, don't wrap your faith around your politics, you need to adjust your politics according to your faith. Everybody listening to me would go, that's exactly right. And that's exactly why, what I've done. The reason I'm a Republican is because I'm a Christian. <laughs> There's another group that's like, no, the reason I'm a Democrat is because I'm a Christian. Um, and so it is so it is so difficult to tease this out and figure this out and to be honest with ourselves and to listen to others and to expand the sphere of people to whom we listen and things that we read. So we're also susceptible to it because as Americans, maybe in particular, you know, faith and religion, or excuse me, faith and politics. Um, in fact, I said this Sunday to our church, I said, you know, the, the essence of self-righteousness is not that we think we're right, but it's so internalizing our rightness that it becomes part of our identity, at which point I'm going to make your wrongness part of your identity. And now we're not talking about issues anymore. I'm, we're talking about I'm right. I'm a right person and you are a wrong person. And the moment we allow and the moment we so internalize a view um, that it becomes part of our identity, we've we've shut down the conversation and the amazing thing and this is why i just had to write a book about it jesus models this perfectly he was righteousness personified and yet did not come across self-righteous and so consequently who gathers to hear him speak or the tax gatherers and the sinners the most unrighteous group in the community so there's a way to do this correctly paul models it jesus models it but for some reason, the last couple of years, it's like we've just forgotten all of that. And when I say we and I talk about this in the book, I'm really not, you know, shaking my fist or, you know, it's a we problem. We are one body. If I slap you with my hand, you are not mad at my hand. You are mad at all of me. So this is a we problem. And I just felt like, hey, let's we need to talk about it. Yeah, and I, I do think you articulated that in the book, it, it, you know, kind of how it is us and how we walk through that together. Again, to remind you, the book is not in it to win it, why choosing sides sidelines the church. So I, I mentioned I'm recording here from the uh, Wycliffe College. It's an evangelical school on the camp, downtown Toronto campus, the University of Toronto. And you come to Canada and they're sort of on the other side of what we might call the culture war. And um, the I would say evangelicals don't see themselves as having the capability of taking over or redirecting the country. And it's a different relationship. But but Andy, it seems that 
some people would say, I had a great conversation with someone who would disagree with you and me on the themes of, of not in it to win it. What he says, you know, we're at a we're at a cultural moment. You know, we all see the the problems around us, but what he said is, me and my people, we we think it's like just before the Russian Revolution, and if we don't do something, it's going to be cataclysmic, and we got to get the churches engaged and involved. So uh, in Canada, no one's thinking that way. But if we're at this pivot point, why not go all in? Why not say this is people use the example of prior, prior to elections, rushing the cockpit on you know 9-11. It's that kind of moment. And yet Andy's telling us, don't take sides, stand back, stand down. What's how would you respond? Well, first of all, so I'm not misunderstood. I think every American should vote every single time they get to. We don't, we don't have a Caesar. It is we the people. And that's the greatest privilege in the world. So no matter whether we ever express our opinion out loud or not, we have an opportunity to do what really makes the difference. And that is vote. Our opinions and our tweets and our social media blasts, completely irrelevant. Doesn't change anything except possibly ruin our reputation. So we have the opportunity to vote. And I tell our congregations all the time, you need to vote your Christ-informed conscience, your Christ, your law of Christ-informed conscience. Just, you know, and so we, we need to be politically engaged at that point. Um, but here's the thing, and this is why I chose the title. When you follow Jesus through the gospels, he was not here to win anything the way that we define win. And we as Americans love to win. And if it's one of our criticisms of some other European nations, like you love to compete, but you don't love to win. We want to win. I get that. I love the American spirit. I love competition, but we follow Jesus through the gospels and he refused When people consider him an enemy, he refused to return the favor. He's told us you're to love and pray for your enemies, which means there's not a competition. There's not a win in the normal sense of win. And then he, you know, takes this long, arduous journey to Jerusalem, knowing he's going to become a loser on purpose, with a purpose. And it's why he stands out against, you know, against and in contrast to all the world leaders of his day, because he did something unique. And if I'm a Jesus follower, if I'm a Jesus follower, then my mission in life is to replicate the character and the nature and the tone of Jesus and to live to the best of my abilities. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus. And if Christians do that, it's going to make our nation a better nation. And it doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't solve the problems, but it at least creates the context in which the problems can be solved because Christ-like Republicans and Christ-like Democrats can communicate and they can listen. And again, it's in the messy middle that the problems are solved, but allowing ourselves as Christians to be baited into the extremes at, in that moment, we've, we've already lost. So there is a way forward. It's clear. It's not difficult. It's not intuitive. It's not all that American, but at the end of the day, it makes the world a better place. And we know that because once upon a time, crushed between temple and empire, this handful of Galileans did something that ultimately shaped Western civilization. So the path has been paved. We just need to get back on that well-paved path. You mentioned the faith of the next generation uh, is always a casualty of the culture war. And to quote in the book, the church takes a leading role in the fray. I mean, that that's a huge statement. What impact do you see um, our, our current culture wars having an impact on the next generation of Christians and, and the kids in the church right now? Well, this should go without saying, but it, it doesn't. I have three kids all in their 20s, 29, 27, 26. 
this generation correctly expects our generation who claim to be Christians not to hold the correct political views. They actually expect us to act like Jesus. The nerve of them, right? I mean, so their issue and what they perceive and how they measure success or failure in terms of our generation and Christianity is not how we vote. It's not even really the necessarily the views we hold. It's, wait a minute, you're, I, whether I'm going to follow Jesus or not, hey, I'm figuring that out, but I certainly expect you to behave like I would envision Jesus behaving. So the challenge, and I, Russell Moore has a great quote that I, I put in the book. He said, you know, it's not a matter of whether or not this generation is going to, this generation isn't wrestling with whether or not they believe. They're beginning to wrestle with whether or not I believe and we believe what we say we believe. So what they're looking for is not correct politics. What they're looking for is a Christ-like posture. And we can maintain a Christ-like posture regardless of our politics. In fact, we're called to remain, to, you know, maintain a Christ-like posture in spite of our politics. And when we see that happen, and it happens, it actually happens more times than not, but it never makes it to the news because um, good news is no news. Bad news is news. Conflict is news. When I'm, I'm a journalism major from Georgia State University, one of the first lessons, you know, nobody cares how many trains made it on time. They just want to know about the one that crashed. You know, nobody cares how many airplanes landed successfully in, you know, um, at Hartsfield, they want to, you know, people want to know about the exceptions to the rules and that that drives media. Hey, that's never going to change. But Christians, we have an opportunity to do something different. And at the end of the day, it's to behave and relate to one another and speak to one another like Jesus. So I, I was I had a meeting with a group of pastors in Chicago uh, a couple of days before we recorded this and very, very robust, good friends like we're friends and uh, one pastor said, I just can't imagine a scenario while where Christians could go in and in good conscience vote for Joe Biden, just to use our current political uh, name, the name names. Um, and another pastor, African-American pastor said, I-, I can't imagine any my sisters and brothers in Christ would choose to elect Donald Trump. It's like they chose Donald Trump over us, took it person. And then someone said, well, I, I couldn't imagine voting for Joe Biden because I got to vote for the unborn. And then and, and then these were like friends. But they really were at a just irreconcilable differences Mm -hmm. uh, politically. And so and that's just within these are pastors. These are pastors who would identify. I think all use the word evangelical to describe themselves. So how do we even think about disagreeing politically while remaining unified as the body of Christ? That's a key part of the theme in in not in it to win it. Again, the subtitles why choosing sides side by church. And they were actually modeling it. They were mm-hmm. sitting down together and, and they, here was the assumption. <clears throat> Here's somebody I respect who's a Christian and they're voting for someone I can't imagine voting for. And mm-hmm. then the next question is, I want to understand that. I, in other words, every, the thing True. is, and you know this, Ed, every, everything everybody does makes perfect sense to them. So if I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, it's because I don't understand something. And if I can't understand why you would say that, it's because I don't understand something. So the next thing out of my mouth isn't, you know, a criticism. The next thing out of my mouth is, please explain that to me, because I I think you're a rational person. And again, we can walk away from those conversations 
disagreeing over who we vote for. But we as Christians, we should be the most curious people in the world and the less dogmatic when it comes to most things. And if I'm not curious enough to want to understand why you hold the position you do, then we're never going to make any progress. But there's no, there's no, nothing to lose in asking those questions and walking away saying, you know what? I still disagree, but I understand. You know, I came into this going, I can't even imagine why you would do that, but okay, I at least I understand. Well, that's the world I want to live in. That's the world we want to raise our kids in, as opposed to since I don't understand how you could possibly do that, I'm never going to speak to you again. And I'm going to talk about you critically on social media. That's, you know, that's absurd. You say that unity is, isn't just like a, a perk. Uh, you call it mission critical. Uh, so, so two things like why, why is it mission critical? And then, you know, as a pastor yourself, talk to some of the pastors and church leaders listening. How do they facilitate unity in the midst of great political diversity in their church? Well, first question first. It's so interesting to me in John 17. It's this, you know, Jesus called the high priestly prayer. Jesus, the only time we know about, is specifically praying for the generation that follows the apostles. He says, I want them to be one in purpose, like you and I are one in purpose, Father. And I pray for those who believe as a result of their testimony. So when Jesus has an opportunity, or when we get a snapshot of Jesus praying for the future church, what is the thing he's most concerned about? Not theological purity. Obviously, that's important. Not a lot of other things that we think are important. His number one concern was unity, that we would be together in doing for our world and in our world exactly what he had done in and for our world in terms of the messaging. And then he says twice in that prayer, it's so powerful. He says in, there's two henna clauses or two purpose clauses in order that the world would know that you sent me. The unity of the church is mission critical because the unity of the church is the signpost. It's the, you know, it's the reminder, it's the message to the world that God sent his son. So again, we can disagree politically, but we can still maintain our unity. We can have differing opinions without being divided. And um, in the book, I, I close with this, you know, it's, it's such a, the story is so familiar, we kind of rush to the end. The fact that Jesus chose his last act of service that's recorded in the Gospels before his crucifixion was to wash his disciples' feet and then say to them, okay, guys, you're never going to be too big for your britches to, then, to wash each other's feet. In other words, as I've done for you, I've just taken all your excuses away. I know you don't agree on a lot of things. I know you have different frames of reference, and you know it's about to get really crazy, but you just remember this. I, your master, washed your feet. I'm not too good to wash your feet. You are not too good to wash one another's feet. Well, what that says is this. When I'm in a room or when I'm with a group of other believers, especially, and we don't see the world the same way politically, we have more in common than not. And if we can lean into that moment, we can make progress and we can disagree politically. We can love each other unconditionally. So as Jesus said, so the world would know that God sent Jesus into the world. It's mission critical because Jesus said it was mission critical. So um, a lot of lot of Bible there, and a little uh, sound kind of like Dallas. You started going <laughs> Dallas Seminary on us again. So and that's and that's good. But let me let me fast forward two thousand years to a political moment. How is the book again? It's not in it to win it. Uh, the subtitle here is it kind of gets to this: why choosing sides sidelines the church. But two thousand years from the time we were talking about some of the New Testament work, we, we hear the phrase, well, there's fine people on both sides. 
And that mm. both sides conversation, something uh, got became very, very controversial. And I know, because I've been, I recorded you in your Buckhead campus, and we talked about kind of the social, cultural milieu around there. I, I used to live in Forsyth County, and it's a very different world than, than your Buckhead campus. Yep. I just can't, as you write this book, I can imagine people saying in Forsyth County, well, wait a second, are you saying that side's okay? And people in Buckhead saying, are you saying that side's okay? And so how is this not just, well, it's fine that you believe whatever you believe, and there's fine people on both sides? It's true. There are fine people. Now, when we say both sides, again, that phraseology takes us to a specific Charlottesville. It was Charlottesville. We're we're not talking. Right. We're not talking about that. Right. Right. We're talking about about that. But my point is, my point is, is that your people are going to say, well, Andy's just saying that people on both sides. But we don't we don't really believe people on both. We believe there are people who are wrong. We we believe that people who who would believe in segregation are wrong. We believe people who would believe in, uh, in, 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 you know, in certain approaches to sexuality, morality, that they're outside yeah. of our understanding of yeah. the biblical teaching. There are not just everybody's okay on both sides. How do we not just have both sidism? Well, great question. And I don't have a super short answer, but that's why we get up every single Sunday and open the new Testament and open the scriptures and say, as Jesus followers, here's where we don't have any options. You, you showed respect for everyone. I mean, it's the fruit of the spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Well, there's no option there. This is, these are our marching orders. It's love others as God through Christ loved us. These are our marching orders. It's all the one another's that the apostle Paul scatters through all of his, his letters. These are, these are our marching orders. There's, we are, we are to be kind regardless. These are character issues and heart issues, and they're ultimately relationship issues. And as long as we hold on to those, and as long as we allow, again, the law of Christ to shape our posture, our conversation, our attitudes, then we, it, creates the, it creates the correct context to talk about all these issues where we disagree. So it's not as simple as, hey, you go your way, I go my way, and you know, we'll get to heaven and sort it out. No, we are a body. And um, we can disagree politically. We can even disagree on approach to certain issues. Um, and love unconditionally. When at the beginning of every election cycle, I always do either a message or a series in January to say, here it comes, <laughs> here it comes again. And a few years ago, I started using this line, hey, we may disagree on what's best for people, but we can't disagree that what's best for people is what's best because God loved this world enough to send his son to die for the people of this world. So we can disagree on what's best. We can't disagree that what's best for people is what's best. So there's plenty of common ground once we come around the teaching of Jesus, teaching of the apostle Paul. And again, both of them navigated extraordinarily difficult cultural issues. And yet, I think in, in, in so many ways left us a pattern to follow. So I'm not suggesting this is um, simple or easy, but I am suggesting as Jesus followers, we don't have any choice but to follow Jesus in terms of how we approach these issues, holding each other accountable, listening, being curious, and judging correctly and appropriately when we need to judge, but not making the mistake of trying to hold a secular, non-believing culture accountable to the standards of the New Testament that they've never subscribed to to begin with, which is a bit of another topic for another day. But my goodness, there's been so much of that that just, I think, muddies the water. Yeah, okay. So so come with me, though, to um, like in, in the Christian community, there's a disproportionate engagement in uh, like QAnon conspiracy theories, right? So things that are that, you know, the 
Comet Pizza in DC was a secret, you know, trafficking location or, or a hundred yeah. other things. We, we see yeah. the QAnon language. You're in your campus in North Georgia. You see a particular prevalence there. So, but so that, I mean, am I going to sit down with somebody or I could go to the, I could go to the far left and say some extreme views of gender identity or whatever it may be. Do I just sit down and say, well, we're followers of Jesus. You hold some of these things and we're just going to have to find a way to agree and be united. Or do I say, no, this is just factually wrong. These are untrue realities. How do we deal with that? Well, conspiracy theories, as you know, you're wasting your time. Anybody holds a conspiracy theory, they're virtually, it's virtually impossible to change their mind. So I don't even know. I mean, that's, Again, that's a little bit of another conversation for another okay. day. But to the point, now, I think, of what you're asking. Would something they're going to work towards unity? Or would we, how would we address that when somebody in Well, the- you, we invite them into a conversation. And if there's actual curiosity and if there's actual mutual curiosity in terms right. of, hey, I may never disagree, but I want to walk away from this conversation going, oh, okay. I, I, I never factored that in. You're a rational, smart person. I just never factored that in. So again, where, where you have mature people who are open minded appropriately because they're locked in solid to following Jesus. Of course you have those conversations and of course you disagree. And of course you argue in, in productive ways because that's how oftentimes we learn. So this is not throw up our hands and go separate ways. And neither is it just roll over and say, well, you know, I'm not going to share my opinion because I don't want to hurt your feelings. No, that's, that's not how we learn or grow. But at the end of those conversations, I can still love you. And at the end of those conversations, I can walk away and still say good things about you. And at the end of those conversations, you're still my brother or you're still my sister. And we disagree, but we have more in common than not because there's something that supersedes, that supersedes our politics. And we hold our values in so many ways with open hands because every single person listening and every single person watching, if they were to trace their views on a number of issues from the time they were 15 to 25 to 35 to 45 or 55, we've changed and we change the way we see things and mature people understand that. And so again, you hang on to some things like this, but you hang on to most things like this. And when that happens, we all learn and grow and hopefully the world becomes a better place. Yeah. Most of our listeners are pastors or they lead in churches. Um, and, yeah, I didn't get to the you know, second part of your question. I apologize. Yeah. No, well, well let's, let's come back to that. Maybe it's a good place to, to land the plane. We're, we're getting ready to, in about a year from now, we're going to launch into a, probably another heated presidential campaign. What encouragement can you give to pastors and church leaders how to lead their congregations towards unity, especially you know, in the next few years? Well, I did start it again. I started this many years ago. You don't wait till you get close. You start in January and you just say, hey, we're, we're entering an election cycle. We know how it's going to be. And let's just go ahead and put some pillars in. You know, let's go put some footings in. Let's remind ourselves of who we are, our values at the end of this election cycle. You know, what what story do we want to tell? This is another thing I ask our congregation when this when we're finished with this season with COVID. It's just going to be a story you tell. What story do you want to tell? What story do we want to tell as a church? And let me go ahead and tell you what the best story is. Then you go to John 17. You go to how Paul navigated some of these things. The best story to tell is at the end of it, we didn't all agree, but we were unified around our desire to follow Jesus and to create an environment in our community where people felt loved and served, and they found a diversity of opinions on some of the peripheral things, but they found a core confidence in the fact that as our heavenly father and as our savior has led us and informed our conscience, again, we have more in common than not. 
And I would say this, in these issues and in these areas that are so contentious, leading with our values rather than leading with our beliefs is the way to start the conversation and keep the conversation going. The moment I start the conversation with, well, this is what I think. Well, then your only option is to tell me what you think. And now we're talking, but the thing is, we share common values, even with people outside our faith, as well as people inside our faith. And if you, again, follow Jesus through the gospels, that's what he did. In so many instances, it was that value proposition. It was that common ground. And then he led people from there. So I think help setting our churches up to know, oh, here it comes. Let's get ready. And what do we want this to look like on the end? And what do we do along the way to ensure that we end up there at the end of another potentially, um, you know, contentious election cycle? Yeah, we're going to so talking coming. about it before in the middle and at the end. Yeah, midterms are coming up. It's yeah, you know, I, I think I think it's going to get worse for kids better. And and so um, okay, so for those of you who everyone has an opinion about Andy Stanley, I have noticed, I have seen, and I have learned. Um, let me encourage you I, again, having read the book, um, you called again, not in it to win it. Why choosing sides, sidelines of church. One of the things that will help you understand Andy Stanley is he tends to make complex arguments and often communicates them in sound bites, but you need to re read the whole argument. So I really want to encourage <laughs> <Thank> you, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I really do want to encourage people to get a copy of not in it to win it. Uh, why choosing sides, sidelines of church. And we've been talking and we're thankful to talk to Andy Stanley. You can learn more about Andy at andystanley.com. Be again, be sure to check out his book. Thanks for listening to the Stetzer Church leaders podcast you can find more interviews as well as other great ministry content at uh, for, for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast if you found today's conversation helpful we'd love you to take a few minutes leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from the content thanks to andy stanley for joining us jessica our producer and daniel yang for being my co-host here on the podcast thanks for listening you've been listening to the stetzer church leaders podcast for more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.